0: Well, hey, you can go ahead and grab a seat and check this out. Uh, I'm not too sure if I agree with that message. Uh, But man, sometimes the reality is that we don't know necessarily what's going to happen, what's going to be necessarily the effect or the far reaching consequence of of a particular action, of a particular thing. When someone wound up that weird little egg timer at the very beginning and hit a little ping pong ball, we didn't necessarily expect to see them trying to justify the hours and hours that they've spent on such a useless contraption. But We don't see that we are we... This happens to us in life, man. There's times where we have a certain conversation or we uh, maybe join a certain class or we join a certain organization or we make a certain friendship or we start dating this certain guy or this certain girl and little do we know what the future holds because of that action. So many times we fail to realize, we fail to understand the full effects or the far-reaching consequences of any particular action, of any particular choice or decision or circumstance, and what's sad is that we as believers, man, mean, we do this with the death of Christ. We talk about the sacrificial death of Christ without often appreciating the full effects of what he accomplished, without realizing necessarily the far-reaching consequences of what he did. We know that Jesus Christ died for us. If you didn't know that, now you do. Jesus Christ died for you. But even though we know that, We still feel distant from God, or we still feel trapped by sin, or we still feel shame, guilty shame of our past failures. But while our feelings may change and fluctuate, truth remains. So what truth do we know about the far-reaching consequences of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross? What does Scripture tell us? Over the next five weeks, uh, we're talking about soteriology. And what that is, is it's the study of salvation. And we're doing this because our church, our Christian church, man, we love to talk about salvation, we love to talk about how you need salvation, or you need to find salvation, or you need to get saved. And yet, what we have in consistency, we often lack in clarity. Many times, we don't necessarily understand how salvation works. Who receives it? Where does it go? What happens? How, how does the whole thing function? And so what we're doing is we're spending, again, just the next few weeks in soteriology, in the study of salvation. And we're doing this because the better we understand salvation, the greater we will appreciate the beautiful, amazing, incredible gift of life that God has offered to humanity through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The life that we can have, the eternal salvation we can have by faith. Through grace in Jesus Christ. This morning we're focusing on the atonement of Christ. A word that maybe some of us have heard, maybe some of us have never heard before, maybe some of us know what it means, most of us probably don't, but we're looking at the atonement of Christ. We're looking at what it is. How does it work, and why was it needed? What were the far-reaching consequences of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross? Now, when I say atone, when I say atonement, what that means, just in English, just in our normal everyday language, to atone for something means to make amends. In other words, to to make up for something else that already happened. Uh, When we see it in Scripture, uh, in the Bible in particular, what we see is that it's associated with man's sin. That's where we see atonement come into play. That's why we see uh, verses like Leviticus 16, where where God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says, this is to be a perpetual statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you must humble yourselves and do no work of any kind, both the native citizen and the foreigner who resides in your midst. So God is telling the nation of Israel, look, every single year, forever, right? This is a perpetual statute for you. For as long as you live, You need to set aside the 10th day of the 7th month every single year. You're not going to be doing any work. You're going to make sure your neighbors aren't doing any work. Why? For on this day, atonement is to be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins. Because you must be clean before the Lord. In the Old Testament, God commands the nation of Israel to set aside this one day, which he calls in other places the Day of Atonement. That's what, that's what it's known as. This annual occurrence, this day every single year where the nation of Israel would essentially, if we kept going, we would see their command is to bring a sin offering before the Lord. In other words, an innocent animal, something clean and unblemished, preferably maybe a young lamb or something along those lines, they would bring the sin offering and it would be killed and It was a symbolic way to show that this blood was brought in to make atonement, to make amends for the sin of the nation. Every single year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would take this unblemished lamb. and He would sacrifice it. He would bring it to the Holy of Holies where God, the Ark of the Covenant, sat, this this symbolic throne of the Lord. And he would sacrifice the lamb. He would sprinkle the blood upon this Ark of the Covenant, and it was a sign of showing symbolically God we have faith in you. We trust in your forgiveness. What we find in the book of Hebrews is that it was never the blood of these animals. It was never the actual physical sacrifice. It was never the act of killing a, a bull or a lamb or whatever. That was never the thing that saved these people. The nation of Israel was never saved because of the sacrifices they made. Instead, those sacrifices were merely an outward display of an inward reality that they had faith in God. The book of Hebrews is very clear in that. We've always been saved by faith. So what we see is the Day of Atonement, though, was this big, huge day where this one major sacrifice would be made for the sins of the nation, which is why it's so beautiful that when we read 1 John 2, as we already did, we see that Jesus Christ himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the whole world what we see is that Jesus Christ became that very sacrifice, that one big sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice that all the nation of Israel knew about, right? This was this day that rolled around every single year. They absolutely knew the day of atonement. They knew what happened on that day. And what John is saying is that Jesus Christ became that. He was our atoning sacrifice. He was our perfect sacrifice. This is the atonement of Christ, this is what we're speaking of when we say the atonement or the atonement of Christ. This is it: that Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice that paid for all of our sin. Now, there's some debate and we're not going to go into it for very long, I'm just going to touch on it very briefly, but there's some debate about who exactly did He die for? That atonement, how far did it actually reach? on whose behalf? was the atonement made. For example, uh, in the nation of Israel, the high priest would go. He would perform one sacrifice for himself so that he would be symbolically clean, and then he would perform the next sacrifice for the nation of Israel. He didn't do it for the, the world. He didn't do it for the nation surrounding him. He didn't do it for the Canaanites or the Philistines or whoever was around him. It was for the nation of Israel. And so some people believe, well, that's what Jesus Christ was. Some people believe in what they call limited or particular atonement, which is that Jesus Christ died for the elect. In other words, Jesus Christ only died for the people who would one day put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. They use different scripture references for this, one of which is John 10 11, where Christ is talking about being the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, some people would interpret this and say, you know what, Jesus Christ is saying that he lays down his life for a particular audience, for only his sheep, not for the goats, not for the people that don't belong to him. All right, and there's Again, there's more behind it, more than just this verse, but that's kind of the argument for limited atonement. The other side, the kind of flip side of that coin, is the people that would say, no, there's, there's unlimited atonement. In other words, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the entire world. That's, they use that first John 2 too, saying that Jesus Christ died was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. This is one of those things that has divided people for years and years and years. Hopefully none of you have even been aware of this debate because ultimately it doesn't really have a lot of consequences. It doesn't really matter in the long run. But for me personally, I I'll I will just tell you, in, in honesty, I think I stand on this hill. I stand on the unlimited atonement hill. And as I've said before, this is something where I'll plant my flag and I'll say, I'm on this hill, but I'm not going to die here. All right? So if you want to come up and just fight me to the death on it, I will say, Let's talk, but I'm not going to battle you until one of us is defeated and bloody on the floor. That's dude, we got too dark. But, you know, I don't want to do that. Like, I'm not going to fight you to death on this sort of thing, Right? It's not one of the essentials. So I'm going to stand on this hill of unlimited atonement, partially because I think it's a more plain interpretation of Scripture. This verse and other verses like it. Uh, I also think, though, that there's a pastoral piece to unlimited atonement that I just can't quite get around. And they're, again, in their defense, in limited atonement, particular atonement, they, would, they, would have a, they have a counter-argument for every single thing that I'm about to tell you. But unlimited atonement is honestly the only camp, it's the only hill that you can stand on and genuinely and honestly look someone in the eye, anyone in the eye, and tell them, Jesus Christ died for you. If you believe in particular atonement, that's not necessarily true. I think when we look at the nature and the character of God, I believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Not everyone's going to reap the benefits of that. They would say, unlimited atonement would say, it's sufficient for all, and yet it's only efficient for some. It's only applied to some people, those who have faith in what he has accomplished. It's not universalism. We talked about that last week. But Jesus Christ, in my opinion, has died for the sins of the entire world that that atonement reaches to all people. And what's happened because of that is so—I mean, there's, there's so much that has happened because of that. There are so many effects from that cause. There's so many far-reaching consequences from what he's done. And honestly, we don't even have time in a morning—we wouldn't have time if we spent all week talking about what that necessarily means for us. But this morning, what I want us to do is we're just going to look at three three particular effects, three kind of major effects from the atonement of Christ— One of which is its effect on man, one of which is its effect on sin, and one of which is its effect on God himself. All these effects from the atonement of Christ. The first one is that we have now reconciliation. We've been offered reconciliation. Jesus Christ provides reconciliation through his atonement. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Who has given us the ministry of reconciliation? In other words, Jesus Christ, through his death, has allowed God to reconcile us to himself. We've talked about this before, but reconciliation, at its just basic meaning, is that you are restoring a relationship to its original status that you're taking what was broken and making it whole again, that you're bringing people together. If you were best friends two years ago, but then you had the cotton candy incident of 2012 or whatever, and you want to be best friends again, that's reconciliation. Reconciliation is that you're best friends. It's not that you just become casual acquaintances. It's not, that because, it's not, it's not when you can just kind of talk to each other and be friendly. Reconciliation means that you are back to your original status. Humanity was originally created in perfect relationship with God in constant community and constant fellowship and God can bring us back to that again he can reconcile us he has reconciled us to himself through the atonement of Jesus Christ now it's interesting in the original greek as if you're reading this in greek you'll notice uh, that reconciliation in, for the Greeks, uh, there were two types of reconciliation. Uh, they had one that was dependent upon both parties, both groups coming together, right So you had the cotton candy incident of two thousand and twelve, and after that, uh, at some point you both have to make a decision we 're both going to come together we 're going to talk about this we 're going to reconcile. That was one term there's certain terms used in Greek to talk about that type of reconciliation. But they had another reconciliation, another term, another group of terms that would talk about reconciliation that was accomplished by one side, entirely by the work of one party, rather than both. In other words, there's a mutual reconciliation, and then there's also an exclusive reconciliation, where one side just grabs the other and forces them into it. We have roommates that maybe cause rifts in our relationships, right? We, we even right now, as soon as I said roommate, you were like, Steve. Right? Like, you have that guy or that girl that you can think of. You're like, man, yeah, we're not quite clicking today uh, for whatever reason. Sometimes our ro- roommates, you know, they live uh, like barbarians, and you know that they're where they are at all times because they're loud and boisterous and doing this and that, and they love to watch whatever movie at 2:30 in the morning. and You're like, why, why, why? And some of our roommates, though, they're like tornadoes, and we don't actually see them really because they're just so quick, but we just feel the effects, right? You walk into the kitchen, you're like, holy cow, Steve cooked a pig or something. Like something happened. There's just nothing is clean ever again. It will never be clean ever again, no matter how much I wash it, because of the effects of this roommate. Some of us have roommates. Uh, I had a few like this who were just ghosts, who you would go home and be like, was Todd, has Todd been here? Was, was, and you'd kind of see something kind of shifted around. Maybe a candle would be lit. and you're like, hmm? <laughs> What is that? And we would try to freak each other out. My roommate Ben would be like, Jacob, Todd hasn't lived here in seven years. Like, what? Some of us have those roommates. And man, sometimes that creates tension where they're living in one way or doing another thing or maybe that's us. Maybe we are living this way or doing that thing. And it creates tension in our relationships. And honestly, that you are only going to reconcile those relationships. You're only going to bring wholeness to what was broken if you are both coming together if both parties are discussing and dealing with the issues that have presented themselves. Now, I currently have a roommate uh, who literally pooped on my floor yesterday. Just straight up, no shame. I, she wears a jacket like a boss, but by golly, she literally defecated on my floor and the reconciliation that we need, right, the reconciliation that we're going to have is entirely dependent on me. Right? Any reconciliation I'm going to have with my daughter Charlotte, who's 10 months old, that's why she does it, don't worry. But it's normal-ish. But my reconciliation with her is dependent entirely on my decision, on my ability to choose to love and forgive my roommate regardless of any questionable pooping decisions she makes in the future. Uh, That's on me. Her behavior is not going to change. We're not going to have a heartfelt discussion about Charlotte. Why Why did you feel the need to go poo-poo then? She would say, bah. (laughs) That wouldn't get us a lot of, you know, it wouldn't take us too far. That reconciliation is entirely dependent upon me. It's a one-sided exclusive reconciliation. And wouldn't you know it? As we're reading the New Testament, as we read 2 Corinthians 5.18, when we see reconciliation between God and man, when God reconciled us to himself, that is that exclusive, one-sided, one-party, only the work of one-member reconciliation. Every time. The reconciliation we have with God is entirely by his work. Our reconciliation to God is the Whole work of God in Christ, by which he changes our relationship from hostility to harmony. That's beautiful, and it's amazing, and praise God for that. The atonement of Christ has a drastic effect on man, in that we are now able to be reconciled to God by his act. Why Paul says in Romans five, we have been declared. Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have perfect relationship. We have peace. We have harmony with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The atonement of Christ provides peace with God. That is something so valuable. That is something to be cherished. Something to be thankful for. The atonement of Christ doesn't only Have this effect on man. It also has a very severe, drastic effect upon sin. Ephesians 1 tells us that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Atonement has this incredibly powerful effect on sin because Christ, through the atonement, provides redemption. Redemption. Now, sometimes when we use the term redemption, uh, we use it simply to mean deliverance or, or payment or satisfaction in some way. Sometimes we think, well, it just means that you're getting delivered out of something or you pay a debt and so you're, you're free from it. And while it does mean deliverance in a sense, it's actually a very particular type of deliverance. When we see redemption in Scripture, it means that there is, it's a very specific type of deliverance. It's a very specific type of payment. In that it's a deliverance that requires a payment of a great price. Every time it's used, it's talking about an incredibly, just almost incomprehensible price that must be paid for that deliverance, which we see in our world in times like this. I've turned into a couponing addict. Who has the most diapers in his stockpile? She does. I do. And who doesn't have children? I don't. $144.33 worth of groceries for a penny. Oh Been rising and rising and rising. Winning, winning. These were free, these were free, these were free, these were free. My latest find is cat treats that paid me 60 cents a bag. Funny thing is, we don't own a cat. Score! Coupons to me are money, and you wouldn't believe how much money people throw away in those dumpsters. I paid a penny, I paid a penny. Look at all that makeup mommy's getting. my register locked up. It did. Thank you for the challenge of the day of the year of my career. (laughs) This is my wall of toothpaste. Sometimes, sometimes the great price is you now have a wall of toothpaste in your house, like a psychopath, uh, because you just so desperately want to get those savings because you want to be delivered from full price payment of whatever it is you're trying to buy. Sometimes that's the price, and sometimes man, people are willing to pay that. Uh, When we see redemption in the New Testament, what we discover is that the great price that's being discussed is that it required to deliver us from our sins, it required the death of the Son of God. It required the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the payment required by our sin. But because he paid that, because he paid that great, incredible, huge, unfathomable price, we are now delivered from sin. We're no longer slaves to it, as Paul would say. We're no longer in bondage to sin. We're not only delivered from sin, we're also delivered from the law. We're no longer slaves of the law. We're no longer under the law. Before The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if you wanted to follow God, you had to obey his law. God set forth the law for the nation of Israel, uh, all these commandments. We generally think of those ten commandments, right? Do not... Put any don't have any false idols don't worship any other gods before me don't don't lie don't cheat don't steal that kind of thing but but what we realize uh, if we read more of Deuteronomy and Leviticus in particular is that's not the whole law those ten commandments were crucial and kind of central but those are actually just a very small fraction of the law in total God gave the nation of Israel six hundred and thirteen total commandments to follow. Different commandments that related to uh, your cleanliness before the Lord, if you wanted to worship him, uh, things about if you have a scuffle with your neighbor, if you have this thing with another nation, if, whatever. covering all these different types of life, things that you could eat, things that you couldn't eat, uh, that kind of stuff, who you could marry, who you couldn't marry. And, and it talks about all these different commandments, 613 commandments given by God to the Israelites, and if you messed up any of them, the penalty for that, the payment required by that was death. Any of them. That's why the nation of Israel would perform, again, those sacrifices. And again, as we now know, looking back, thanks to the book of Hebrews, we know those people were never justified. They were never saved by those sacrifices, and they were always saved by faith. God called them to follow those laws, but God knew that they would never follow the law. In fact, what Paul tells us in Romans is that the law was meant to even just show them how helpless they were. The law was designed to show them that they could never follow the law. They would only ever be saved by faith in God, in his promises, in his grace, in his mercy. No one in the ancient nation of Israel could ever be expected to follow all those laws. And yet, Jesus Christ did. That's what makes the atonement of Christ so perfect. That's what makes it it guarantee that we no longer have to worry about the law, because Jesus Christ actually followed all of the law. He followed all of it perfectly. It's been fulfilled. Christ fulfilled the law, meaning that he covered all of it. He was perfect in walking in those commandments. That's why now Paul tells us in Galatians that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one ever has been justified by the works of the law. Is what he says going on in Galatians. He says, instead, we are justified. In other words, we are made right before God, a christian term that we'll actually talk about in a couple weeks, but we are going to be justified. We are saved, not by the law not by obedience, not by following this list of rules, but instead by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. If Christ had died on the cross and yet wasn't perfect, if he wasn't sinless, then his death would have only paid for his own personal sin. But he had no sin. He was without blemish. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus Christ died the death that we deserved. So that when he was raised again into new life, we could share in that salvation. We can share in that eternal life with him. So what we see in Galatians, we see all throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus Christ, his atonement, I mean it, it fulfilled the law. We're not called to, we're not under the law anymore. Now God still calls us to obedience, right? He still wants us to obey, but it's out of love. It's not out of a fear that I have to obey to be saved, or I have to obey to guarantee that I'm saved. Instead, God wants us to obey him out of love. Christ himself says that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. We have the opportunity to please God through a healthy relationship, through a fruitful relationship, rather than through just a list of rules. That's why Consistently in Scripture, we see our lives, the lives of a believer, being compared to a vine or a tree, something that produces fruit. Because God wants fruit from our lives because it benefits him and us. Uh, God can get along fine without us, right? He doesn't need our fruit, but it pleases him. He's glorified when we live in such a way that brings him honor and praise. That po- and when we live in such a way that points to him. God says, man, I want that for you. I want you to have that healthy relationship with me. Because if you have that healthy relationship, you'll produce fruit, right? Like we see this with trees. If you have an unhealthy tree, it's not going to produce a lot of fruit. Unhealthy trees, you forget to maybe water it, or you yell at it a lot, or you hit it with your car. Like that's an unhealthy way to take care of a tree. That tree's not going to turn out too great. But you could have a healthy tree, right? We've seen these, We've maybe in an orchard, and or you've got one in your backyard. I have a fig tree next to my house that all the birds love. I've never gotten to eat a fig from it, but by golly, those birds curse them. But they they get to go in, and they get to reap the benefits of this healthy tree. Why? Because we are watering it. We remember to, to water to provide for it. We, it's in a place where it gets lots of sunshine, where it gets the nourishment that it needs. Sometimes I go out there, I just... I just start massaging those roots, right? Got to make sure, like, you got this, right? Kind of encourage it. you got these figs. I've never done that. I will, though, because, by golly, I want to eat a fig. But we see healthiness and unhealthiness in these crops and these trees and these vines. That's why we see this illustration constantly in Scripture of, man, that's what our life should be. That's what God wants for us. It's not that we need to be scared and think, like, oh, if I'm too unhealthy, like, that means I'm going to, I'm doomed. Like, that's not at all, God's point, that defeats the purpose. God wants us to do these things out of love. He wants us to perform these uh, actions. He wants us to obey him out of uh, a desire to please him, out of, out of love for him, not out of a selfish, inward-focused fear. And if we do this, man, if we, we have that relationship with him, he promises that every single one of us, if you, have a, if you are a believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit our helper, our teacher, and he will produce fruit in your life. Because ultimately, it's not even you deciding like, I'm going to be loving. You know, like that's not up to us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all fruit of the Spirit, meaning you have to go to the Spirit to find that fruit. It's not of this world. It's not of us. It's from the Spirit. God wants that in our lives, and it's only made available. We can only do that because of the atonement of Christ. The atonement of Christ provides peace with God, and it provides deliverance from sin and the law. It's beautiful. But it doesn't only have this effect upon God, it doesn't only have this this effect upon man, this effect upon sin, but the atonement of Christ has a powerful effect on God Himself. First John four tells us, "In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. That He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ is our propitiation." A word again that we throw around that you are like, "What? Like I don't know what that is." And essentially, a propitiation is merely the act of appeasing or satisfying another person, or another party, or another group, or whatever it is, a deity. Propitiation means that I'm going to appease this person. Or I'm going to satisfy this person. Why did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross? If you ask that to average Christian in America. You ask it to maybe go across the street, talk to some uh, kids growing up. Maybe even just poll who we are right here, right now. If You ask us why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? A lot of us would say, uh, well, to save us from our sins. That's something that's kind of been ingrained into our culture. But the reality is that that's not quite right. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross to save us from our sins. Not quite. When we look in Scripture and we see sin mentioned, right? what we know is that sin is, uh, another, is basically just a, a word for disobedience or, or, or offending God. It literally means that you're missing the mark that's been set before you. If I sin, I, I miss it. God has put up this this target, this mark of perfection. It's what he wants from us. It's what he requires of us. And yet we can't quite hit it. I can't follow all 613 laws and commandments. And so God says that is sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made that mistake. And the unfortunate part of that is that if when we commit that offense, when we disobey in that way, uh, it has huge consequences. Because the offense, any offense, is a bigger deal depending on, based on who it is you're offending. Right? The punishment or the penalty is always, uh, it's always connected to who exactly are you offending. If you came up uh, after this morning and you were offended, maybe you like, thought something that I said about this was wrong, or you're like, plaid, what? And so like, you come up, and you're, like, upset at me, and you, you're so upset, and you're, you're so used to training dogs, you spray me with a, with a water bottle, okay? You just kind of squirt me right in the face. If you did that, um, I, actually, I honestly don't really know what I would do. I probably should have thought about that before I use this as an example, but I would probably uh, just kind of be, I would probably be really confused, and I would be like, hey, well, let's not do that again. You know, electronics, I might get electrocuted, let's just be careful, uh, with spray bottles, what is wrong with you? You know, I don't know. We, we'd follow up. They would get coffee and have a beautiful friendship start from there. I don't know, uh, but I would in that moment. Not a lot would happen. Now, maybe instead you decide, you know what? I'm not upset at Jacob. Who I'm upset with right now, my heart has been broken by a Texas A&M football coach. Right? Whoever you pick, why? Because your heart was broken last night. I understand. I'm here for you, but. You decide, man, I'm, I'm really upset by one of these football coaches, so I'm going to go up. I go up to Coach uh, Sumlin, and I you spram with a water ball, just tss, right in the face. <laughs> All right, now if you do that, I don't know what would happen to you. Uh, if you tried to do that in front of uh, other coaches or in front of his team, I you would probably be physically restrained, maybe, you know, kind of get a little helmet to the face a little bit. I don't know. Like something would happen, uh, probably a a, bit, a little bit more extreme than if you had sprayed me. If you decide, you know what, who I'm really upset with? President of the United States. And you go to the President of the United States and you try to run up to him and just tss, right in the face, <laughs> no one will probably ever hear from you ever again. Uh, that's probably going to be the end of your time with us. Uh, because the offense, the penalty from that offense is going to increase depending on how important the person is that you are offending. We have offended God. Our sin is a disobedience. It's an offense against God, the Lord who created all of creation, the God who is outside time and outside space, who's over all these things, who's in control of everything around us because he made it. When we offend him, he tells us the penalty is death. He tells us the penalty is actually even not just death in the sense that our physical life is over, but death in the sense that, in its most literal sense, the separation, that we were going to be separated from him for all of eternity. That's the penalty. Because he is perfectly just. He has to punish our sin in that way. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly fair. So he has to punish us in that way. But he's also perfectly loving. So he wanted to send his son to die in our place as our propitiation, which is just another term for substitute. When you see propitiation, what you're seeing is that Christ is our substitute, that he stood in for us. The atonement of Christ, in other words, does not save us from sin. The atonement of Christ saves us from the wrath of God, from the punishment of God. which is brought about by our sin. But it's not our sin that we need saving from. It's the wrath of God. And thankfully, because Christ was our propitiation, because he was our substitute, God's righteousness, his perfection is satisfied because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, right? He fulfilled the law. He was without sin. And so he lived in perfect righteousness, in perfect harmony with God. So God sees that and it satisfies His requirement for perfection. Uh, It also satisfies God's judgment, or sorry, justice. God's justice is satisfied because it required a judgment of sin of death. And so Jesus Christ died. And his death satisfied that need for justice, that need to bring about judgment. He acted as the substitutionary payment for our sin. That's amazing. Praise God. And this incredible sacrifice, this incredible substitution, is what, Paul, is what leads Paul to bring up Romans 3.25. He starts using this kind of extended illustration, this example of what exactly Christ accomplished. He says, God publicly displayed him, being Christ, at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. Paul says God is essentially turning Christ into the mercy seat. He's displayed him as the mercy seat. What in the world is the mercy seat? The Ark of the Covenant that I mentioned 25 minutes ago. Because it was the thing that the Day of Atonement was all about, right? Remember the head priest would take this lamb, he would go in, he'd find the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sacrifice this lamb, he'd sprinkle the blood upon it. And on that day, on that Day of Atonement, the sins of Israel would be covered. They would be forgiven. On top of that Ark was the mercy seat. Now the Ark itself, it it was located essentially in the center of everything. It was in the middle of the temple, it was in the middle of the Holy of Holies, which was the middle room of the middle of the temple, which was located in the middle of Israel. And so you saw the central place, the location of this ark was so important, so symbolic. It was the center of all things, just as Christ wants to be the center of our lives. And when the priest went in there, he would find the ark and its materials were incredible. It was made out of uh, acacia wood. It was this very special, uh, very valuable, very rare wood uh, over there. And what they, what was so wonderful about acacia wood is that it wouldn't rot. It wouldn't spoil. And so what they did is they took all this acacia wood and they covered it in gold on the outside and the inside, completely covered in gold. And you saw this perfect harmony between the natural wood and kind of this man-made, man-hammered-out, man-refined gold. You saw, in other words, another symbol for Jesus Christ. Not only is he at the center of all things, but he is the perfect harmony of, of both humanity, natural humanity, and godly deity. And when you found this ark, you would go to it because it functioned as essentially God's judgment seat, his throne. They didn't actually believe that God sat on it because he didn't, but they would see it as, in other words, kind of a, it represented God's presence. It represented his divine judgment. They knew that he would judge Israel from this seat. And as you approach this ark, as the head priest would go up there and approach it, he would know that inside of this ark, there were three specific items. The contents of this ark were incredibly important. There was a jar of manna, a golden jar of manna, Bread that God caused to fall, or that God sent from heaven onto earth to feed the nation of Israel as they wandered through the desert. Uh, it had the budding rod of Aaron, a rod that Aaron had that God used to perform certain miracles. Uh, at one point during uh, this time of rebellion in the nation of Israel, uh, God caused buds to sprout from this you know, dead staff. And you also saw within this ark, uh, there were the tablets of the covenant, or the tablets of the law. Stone tablets with written out instructions from the Lord. And every single one of these items is displaying what? That God was both just and the justifier. It showed you that man was fallen and sinful. The Israelites cried out and complained because they didn't have food. And so God, being the justifier, sent manna. Israel cried out in rebellion. Korah raised up. They're like, we, we're going to take over. We're going to go back to Egypt. And God caused buds to sprout from the rod of Aaron to help perform this miracle that occurred with the ground split. And all these people were swallowed up. We see man's failure in keeping those laws, and yet God promised one day, "I'm going to send someone who will fulfill this law in its its fullness." The mercy seat. Essentially, what happened was uh, the the priest would go in, and this is a spot where normally was reserved for judgment. Right? It was the throne of God where He would judge the nation of Israel, and yet once a year, one day out of the year. The priest would go in with this one sacrifice, this perfect sacrifice, and this, this seat of judgment would become a seat of mercy. And Paul is telling us in the book of Romans, God is telling us through Paul in the book of Romans, that that's what Jesus Christ was. That's what he accomplished through his death. That's what the atonement of Christ was provides. That's what its effect is on God himself. That it allows him, it removes the barriers of sin, it removes the barriers of failure and fault on our side, and it allows God to now turn that seat of judgment into a seat of mercy. It allows the Lord to make, not, not just be just, but it allows him to be the justifier. It allows him to make us righteous when we couldn't do it on our own. That's what the atonement of Christ accomplishes. It provides peace with God. It provides deliverance from sin. And it perfectly satisfies God's righteousness and his justice. That's amazing. So as the band comes back up, they're going to prepare to kind of lead us through a couple more songs. But as they do that... um, I want us to take a moment. We've done this before. Uh, If this is one of your first times, if you haven't done this before, please don't be freaked out, but we're going to pray with each each other. Uh, You're going to grab a a partner or two, one or two people, whatever it is, you know, whatever you can, however the numbers kind of work out, but grab a couple people around you, and this is going to be a really um, short moment. You're not going to talk for a really long time. Don't worry if that freaks you out, but you just find someone that you know or you don't know, it doesn't matter, Uh, but turn to them and just share with that person a name. You're just going to give them one name and it's going to be the name. It doesn't need an explanation. doesn't even need to be the full name. It doesn't even have to be like the person's real name if you feel like it's going to be, you know, cause some tension. But share with the people, your partner, one or two or three people, share with them a name of someone you know who needs to hear the gospel. Share with them the name of someone in your life whether it's someone you've known for years, maybe it's someone that you've just gone to class with for this semester, maybe it's someone who is a friend of a friend, share with your partner to just the name of someone who needs to hear the gospel, someone who needs to put their faith in the atonement of Christ. Take some time, share that with one another, and then take a minute as soon as you have that name, just spend some time as a little group just praying that God would make himself known to that person, that God would grab a hold of that person's heart. Because ultimately, it's not on. we can't do that on our own. God allows us to partner with him in, in providing this good news, this gospel of Christ. He, he allows us to participate with him in sharing the good news of the atonement of Christ the fact that we don't have to feel distant from God anymore. The fact that we don't have to feel trapped by sin. The fact that we don't have to feel guilt and shame from our past wrongs because Jesus Christ covered all of those things in his atonement. We, don't, we have the opportunity to share that with people, but ultimately it's going to be the Holy Spirit convicting their hearts. So take a moment right now, grab a partner, pray for those names that the Holy Spirit would convict them and lead them to repentance. Pray that right now. Lord, we, we ask that you would be gracious in your dealings with us, that, God, you would be gracious in your dealings with these people in our lives that need to hear from you. God, we ask that you would quickly uh, bring them to know you, that, God, maybe you would use us in some way to bring that about, that, God, you would use our... Uh, our lives or, or our, our words or our actions, Lord, to maybe plant seeds that bear fruit years later or maybe by the end of the semester. God, we, we don't know exactly how you're going to use us, but God, we trust that you will in some way. That, Lord, you've promised that you've laid out works for us to do, works for us to accomplish. And, God, we know that your highest work, your highest calling for us is to go out and make disciples of all the nations, Lord, to lead people uh, to, find, to you, Lord, we recognize that sometimes we're were pulled back from that mission. We're held back from that calling because we just feel weighed down by by sin or by guilt. So if you would take a moment now, just individually, and ask the Lord, what guilt do you need to release? Where do you need to feel freedom in Christ who's freed you from that sin? Where do you need to accept the fact that you have been saved, that He fulfilled the law where you couldn't. Ask the Lord to maybe reveal to you what's that guilt that you're still holding on to that's holding you back, or, or maybe ask the Lord what's the sin, what's the issue that you're still just right in the midst of that you need to flee, that you need to run away from. Ask the Lord to just bring into your mind right now what, what's holding you back from fulfilling His call, and ask Him to give you the strength and, and the power through the Spirit to escape that guilt or to escape that shame or to escape that sin, that issue that keeps popping up. Ask Him that right now.